Amen. Yeah, thank you. Amen. Well, you know, like Psalm 18 said, I hope you can rejoice and be glad. You know, this is the day the Lord has made. We're going to rejoice and be glad in it. Rejoice and be glad in it. Woohoo! Yay! I like rejoicing. I like tea. We were trying to rejoice earlier through the week because we spent a week without air conditioning. But, but I tell you, this, now this is how good God is. This didn't have anything to do with Mark 11, but this has to do with rejoicing, so I'm going to share this with you. That's how good God is. You know, our, our air went out last Saturday, um, and the guy couldn't come until, I mean, you know, he said it could be a week and a half. And I was looking at the forecast, and I thought, well, this, this could be interesting because we had, you know, we have Stephanie in the house. This is Stephanie. And y'all know, I mean, you know how pregnant women are. So, and you know, little kids, and, and so I thought, okay, Lord, this will be interesting. But I tell you, this is how good God was. I mean, really, up until Friday afternoon, it, was, it wasn't bad. I mean, you know, there were a couple afternoons where it got a little close, but man, God always dropped the temperature around dinner time, and always, he always made it, you know, pretty cool overnight. We have an attic fan, and it pulled air through, and, and so it was, it was, it was tolerable and, and really comfortable. And then, you know, Friday was kind of tough, but then Saturday the guy came and put the air in, so it was good. So I, but, you know, it, it, was, it was a challenge a couple different times throughout the week just to rejoice in things like that. Now, I wasn't out in the hay field in 95-degree weather until 10 o'clock at night. I'm sure you guys were rejoicing, though. I'm sure lots of rejoicing. Thank you, God, for all the hay. But, you know, it's, it's always interesting because Paul's the one who said, you know, whatever I find myself doing, wherever I am, I'm going to count it all joy. I'm going to count it all joy. You know, I'm being shipwrecked, I'm being beaten, I'm being, you know, castigated, whatever else. Woohoo! I'm going to count it all joy. Thank you, God, for all these trials and tribulations. Not that not having air conditioning really is a trial or tribulation. And, you know, don't leave here and think, well, he's making comparisons to, you know, Paul's suffering with his lack of air. No, that's not it at all. Just trying to put it in context. Has nothing to do with Mark 11. We're going to go to Mark 11. And if you remember, this, this passage is kind of sandwiched in between the cursing of the fig tree. So we're in 15 through 18. 15 through 18. And the title of the message is, is this, and it's kind of a dovetail, essentially, last week, because the title of the message is More Fruit, Less Leaves. Right? More Fruit, Less Leaves. And I think even put up there, you know, Barren or Blooming, Part 2, because last week was Barren or Blooming, because we were looking at the cursing of the fig tree. And, you know, this, the, 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 the temple incident is kind of sandwiched in between Jesus' lesson with the fig tree. Because he cursed the fig tree on Monday, went and cleaned out the temple, came back Tuesday from Bethany, and that's when Peter said, hey, Jesus, the fig tree, look, it's dead from the roots up. You did something to it. Um, and the whole thing, though, is great because it's, whole, it's this whole wonderful portrait of, of God's judgment. Right? Because so it all flows together, it all ties together really well. But I wanted us to be able to examine just 15 through 18 today, sandwiched in between the cursing of the fig tree. Because there, there's continued judgment even here within the temple, and we'll see that 
So Mark eleven fifteen. Let's read this and, and talk about where we're going. 15 says, They came to Jerusalem. Okay, again, this is Monday. They left Bethany, came to Jerusalem that morning. And he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. He would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple, and he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a robber's den. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this. They began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. So just really three, three main things we're going to pull out of this. First thing we're going to look at is the place, because okay, the place is important. Then we're going to look at the problems that they encountered. And then it kind of closes off with, with somewhat of an epilogue where we get some plotting. All right, so we've got the place, we've got the problems, we've got plotting going on. But, but we also need to understand this, this is the second temple cleansing. Okay? This is not the first one or the only one. This is the second one. All right? John's the only one who gives us temple cleansing number one. Okay, back in John 2, 13 through 22. Now, you know, and it, we think, well, how come Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't do it? Well, if you think about it, Matthew, Mark, and Luke really didn't, didn't mention much of anything about Jesus' original Judean ministry. Hey, John's the one who gave us the meat about that. Now, we know the first temple cleansing occurred just a few days after his very first miracle when he turned water to wine, all right, over in John 2.12. It was before his second miracle in 454. We know that John the Baptist was still alive. We read about that in John 3.22 and following, all right? So this first cleansing, the first cleansing Jesus had done, it was a sign given to the people that, that Jesus was the Son of the Father. He explained that to him because he said, even in John 2.16, this is my Father's house. Okay, this is my Father's house. So he's back again. And if you remember, you know, the day before this happens, Sunday night, you know, they, they travel down to Jerusalem. They check out the temple. And remember, Jesus walks in. He kind of looks around. He assesses things. And he doesn't stay there very long, but he sees what he wants to see. And he comes back Monday and shakes things up. But, but first, let's look at the place. And just verse 15a, the A pattern 15. Because it says they came to Jerusalem. We know they were staying in Bethany. It says they came to Jerusalem and what? They entered the temple. Well, what was the temple? It was made up of a number of different things. There were a lot of courts, a lot of everything else. The temple complex, we know, sat on top of Mount Zion. And it covered about 35 acres. All right, about 35 acres. It was, it was a healthy-sized place. And the outer walls were somewhere around 1,200, 1,300 feet in length. So it was a good-sized place. Now, if you move from the inside of the temple outward, in fact, that's what I put up. If you move in from out, we have the Holy of Holies. Then you have the priest sanctuary where only priests could hang out. It wasn't a lounge. It's just where they could go and do their thing. Then you had the court of Israel, or it's also called the men's court, the women's court, and then the outer part was called the court of the Gentiles, and it was huge, depending on you know who you read, it's anywhere from 750 to 900 feet long, right? Massive, massive court. Now the court of the Gentiles was designated, and this is going to be important. It was designated as a place for anyone for anyone to be able to come and worship God. 
But we also know, because Mark tells us a long time ago, that Gentiles could not leave this court. Right? Everybody remember that? Couldn't leave the court. In fact, Josephus writes it this way. He says, There was a partition made of stone all around, whose height was three cubits. Its construction was very elegant. Upon it stood pillars at equal distances from one another, declaring the law of purity, some in Greek and some in Roman letters. Now, what did the law state? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. It says, No Gentile may enter within the railing around the sanctuary and within the enclosure. Whosoever should be caught will render himself liable to the death penalty, which will inevitably follow. Which is a very flowered way of saying, look, if you're a Gentile and you cross this barrier, we will kill you. But it's a nice way to say it. Isn't that whosoever should be caught will, will render himself liable to the death penalty, which will inevitably follow. That's a nice way to say that. I'm going to put something like that. I don't know. I'm going to start putting stuff like that around my house. We're going to work on that. But it, it, was, it, was a, it was a nice way to say, look, if you are a Gentile, if you're not one of us, you cross this. It doesn't say you might be killed. What it says, inevitably, you will die. We will, we will kill you. Have a nice day. Bless your heart. All right? So, so those are the courts that comprise the temple. Well, the problem with the court of the Gentiles was, man, there, there was this huge cacophony in the courts, because there was such disdain for the Gentiles. Okay, we, we've talked about those barriers of separation. There was such disdain for the Gentiles, and there was such failure to understand the nature of worshiping the Lord. It, it, was, it was found in this court of the Gentiles be, because it became host to what was called the Bazaars of Annas. Not B, but Ba. B-A-Z-A-A-R-S. The Bazaars of Annas. He was the one who granted permission initially to family members. And I said, family members could come in, and they set up basically what looked like a flea market in the court of the Gentiles. So this place that was supposed to be reserved for Gentiles to come in and worship the Lord, okay, worship, it became a flea market. There were, there were animals, bargain hunters, merchants, and they were all crowding this area that, that should have provided dignity and quiet contemplation for these worshipers coming in. Now, there are also kickbacks and fees for the priestly family, and, and so those things kept the bazaar in, in full swing year-round, and, and it, it was to the total neglect of why the temple was even there at all. See, the, the, the religion maintained this outward form, lots of leaves, but offered no sense of holiness and no sense of the glory of God. And it was, even, it was even crazier at Passover time, because Passover time, man, there were huge crowds. Remember we talked about Jerusalem was a town of about 80,000. Passover time, it swelled to over 2 million people. All right, so we had just tons of people. Well, of course, those people are going to be hanging out, a lot of those people hanging out in the temple area. So huge crowds, there was excitement, there was hustle, there was bustle, there was busyness. I mean, the temple was a happening place. So a stranger could walk in, and he could see all the excitement and busyness and everything. He's saying, wow, man, this, this is a happening place. This, this is a deeply believing, loving people. They are very busy and focused on you know, God's business. Because you know, if this place was barren, if it was really quiet or, or just sedate or, or whatever else, well, it wouldn't be very exciting or interesting. There couldn't be religious stuff going on. This is deeply believing, loving people. And you know, we know in reality it was just this 
this religious shell. And essentially, as Jesus was saying, look, no, guys, it's all leaves. There's no fruit. It's all just this covering. So we have the court of the Gentiles. This cacophonous place of animals and people and yelling and you know, business and everything else. And it was a problem for Jesus. He wasn't excited about it. B part of verse 15 through 17 tells us about the problems that, that he, he encountered. I think I put up there, money changers, merchants, meanderers, oh my. But the first thing, first thing we see is there was, there was a, it was a huge convenience. I, and that doesn't sound like a bad thing. It was a convenience. Well, why was it a convenience? Well, the first thing we see is, is and I think I put up shekels are us. I have to add an S and an. I just like the R-S. I don't know why. But this is important because Jews couldn't use Roman coins for their, their half-shekel temple offering. Okay? Every adult Jewish male had to pay a half-shekel offering when they came at Passover time. Well, you couldn't use Jewish coins, so in the temple, they had money changers, and they would take whatever coins you had, whatever kind of currency you had, it didn't matter what it was, Jewish coin or whatever, they, they would exchange anything and get you the, the Tyrian coinage, right kind of coinage. It was very convenient. Well, thank you. I thank you for that convenience. We appreciate that. Well, now, there are sacrifices. There are sacrifices. Well, the doves or, or goats or lambs or whatever it was that had to be brought in and sacrificed, well, they had to, they had to have a stamp of approval from the priests. All right? They had to be without blemish. And, and the priests had to say, okay, this sacrifice is good. Well, it was much easier. Rather than cart you know, the animals or carry the animals or whatever you did with animals, it was much easier. Rather than carry all these animals along, well, you used to just go to the temple and you could buy a pre-approved dove or goat or lamb or something else because the, the priests are pre-approved the ones that were in the bazaar being sold, so you could just buy one there. Your sacrifice was right there, boom, you take it and go sacrifice. It was very convenient. Now you could also, and this was helpful too, you could buy wine, you buy oil, you buy flour, you buy salt, and they were all necessary components for sacrifices, and so it was all very convenient. Isn't that nice? They were just, they were just looking out for people. It was very convenient. Now the temple was situated where it was also kind of a shortcut through different parts of the city. People could pass through from one part of the city to the other rather than skirt around because 35 acres, that's, that's a healthy size. So if you cut right through the middle, well, that makes it easy. That's very convenient. Now, late, later rabbis, they got kind of tired of this, and so they cite a provision that a man, this is great, that a man may not enter into the temple mount with his staff or his sandal or his wallet or with the dust on his feet nor may he make of it a short bypath. They, so they got tired of that eventually. But, now, now get this, because I want you to understand the picture. All this was taking place in the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, where non-Jewish people were supposed to be coming in and worshiping. Okay, they're supposed to be coming in and worshiping. So there, there's animals roaming around. There's merchants yelling out, hey, I got salt for, you know, whatever salt sold for them. Um, and people passing through, and just all this noise and chaos and everything else. It'd be like coming in here. We could try this sometime. Bring in some animals, and oh, we could set up some booths, 
I don't know, it'd be like coming in and saying, okay, we're just going to let animals run around and, and people run around and, and stuff go on, but we're still, by golly, we're going to contemplate Lord God Almighty and we're going to you know, prostrate ourselves and worship Him. So that, that was the setting. That's where they were. That was the place. It was this court of the Gentiles and all this nonsense was going on. But it was all convenience. It's very, very convenient. Well, the, the problem was even deeper because there was corruption. There were added expenses to everything you bought at the temple. It's kind of like going to Six Flags, except I think their market was higher. For instance, all right, money changers had a captive audience. If, if you came in from out of town, and most people did, and you had foreign currency, a lot of people did, well, you had to exchange your money. You had to. Well, the money changers understood that, so they charged anywhere from 10 to 12% for every transaction. That's not bad, 10 to 12%. Well, what about animals? Well, they had, they had the most excellent animals. They had wonderful doves and, and goats and lambs and things. And, you know, a lot of people didn't want to take the chance that their sacrifice wouldn't be approved. I mean, can you imagine you have, you have um, little, little, you know, Billy the goat, and you, you brought them from your home, and you think Billy's just a wonderful goat, and, and just the best goat ever. You come in, and the priest says, no, Billy is not a good goat. You need one of our goats. Well, that'd be very disappointing. And so the safest thing, the easiest thing was to bring, you know, just bring some extra money and buy your sacrifice. Because all their animals were excellent. Well, here's the problem. Doves, which, which were the least expensive thing you can buy. I mean, poor people bought doves. When Mary sacrificed, you know, when they, they, Mary just did it for Jesus, well, they, they, they bought a pair of doves. Doves were two gold dinars. That was two full days' wages. Okay, just for a couple doves. Two full days' wages. Now, this, is, this, is, this will help you understand perspective of what normal doves went for. Later in the first century, and this is kind of cool, Rabbi Simeon, who was the son of Paul's teacher Gamaliel. Everybody remember Gamaliel? Okay. Rabbi Simeon came along, and, and he finally crusaded to lower the price of a pair of doves from the two gold dinars to a silver dinar, which was 1% of the original price. So, you know, if you're paying, let's say, $20 for doves in the temple, that means you could have gone on the black market and got them for almost a quarter. A little bit of a markup. A little bit of corruption. And, you know, you could say, well, that, that, sounds kind of, that sounds kind of criminal. Well, it was! They were crooks! All right, these were the religious leaders. They were crooks. See, and, and this is great, too, because on top of all the added fees and exorbitant prices, the high priest and his family, this is, kind of, this is a good gig, the high priest and his family, they got a percentage of all the profits of everything that was done in the temple. So on top of all the extra fees and things, well, because these merchants are operating in the temple, you know, again, it's like being at the mall. You've got, you got, you got to pay your percentage for your business that you're doing. And so that's why Jesus says, you've made my house a what? You've made my house a robber's den. And we say, well, those are harsh words. Yeah, they are. They're true words. 
But it's interesting because the quotation combines two different scriptures. The first is from Isaiah 56, 7, which says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And Jeremiah 7, 11, which says, Has this house, which is called by my name, remember Jesus first time said, This is my father's house. Now he's saying, This is my house. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? But understanding the context of Isaiah 56, 7, what is it? it shows the Lord welcoming all people, all people into his presence. He calls for Jews and Gentiles to approach him in humility, trust, and obedience. He says, for all the nations. It's a house of prayer for all the nations. And this was relevant especially because why? They were in the court of the Gentiles. This is where all the nations were. All the nations were converging here. He says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer, a house of worship for all the nations. It was where the God-fearing, non-circumcised believers came to pray. But now, this is cool too because Jesus was also quoting from Jeremiah's temple gate sermon. That's, that's what seven, Jeremiah 7 is, his temple gate sermon. Now, it, here's where it gets interesting and kind of painful. Because Jeremiah's temple gate sermon focused on, on a people that trusted in the temple of the Lord rather than in obeying the Lord and humbling themselves before him. So they were trusting in the temple of the Lord. And, and as Jeremiah's servant goes on to explain, there was no repentance, there was no justice on behalf of the oppressed and aliens, there, was, there were no right relationships, there was no service of the Lord. Instead, there were people who were engaged in idolatry, and they, they were trusting deceptive words of false prophets that made them feel good about themselves and their behavior. They trifled with the Lord, broke his commandments, and thought nothing about it. You see, these false prophets had assured them as long as they had the temple, then all would be okay for them. God was obligated to protect them and keep up with his bountiful provision. God was obligated. I mean, this is what they were taught. As long as we have the temple, God's okay with whatever we're doing. We're trusting in the temple. We're trusting in what we've done. We're trusting in you know, these rituals and everything else. God's okay with that. And, and I love that because Jeremiah addresses the fact, man, you've got prophets who are, who are simply talking to you and making you feel good about yourself. You can have your best life now. Make you feel good about yourself. They weren't preaching judgment. They weren't preaching repentance. They weren't preaching holiness. They weren't preaching a right view of God. He said, no, no, we, we've got it good here. We've got the temple. It's all right. In fact, in Jeremiah 7, 4, he even, he even comes back with a sarcastic remark. 7, 4 says this, says, Do not trust in deceptive words. Jeremiah is saying, don't trust in deceptive words. And don't be saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Why? Because it, it, was, it was like a cute little chorus that they would go around chanting. Okay, this chorus that they repeat among themselves. They, they were smug and secure in their, in their aberrant, errant religion. And it was, it was sad because they were ignoring the fact that it was the Lord who was to be trusted, not the temple. It was the Lord and not their sacrifices that they had to look to for mercy. But, but the whole nation, okay, the entire nation, was characterized 
by their failure to listen to the warnings. Instead, they'd, they'd just get together in their temple and then they'd say, this is the temple of the Lord, it's all okay, this is the temple of the Lord, it's all okay, we're going to sing some happy songs and feel good about ourselves and we'll leave and, and it's all good because, you know, we're, we're a chosen people. God's taking care of us. So Jesus gives them these harsh words. But then, then he compares them to, to and, and, the, and the picture he paints is just these, these robbers, these thieves, hanging out in their hideout. They're just hanging out in this hideout. And understand that the, the, the term robbers is more than just people who steal. It, it conveys something of, of robbing to create anarchy and upset the balance of society. Because what took place in the temple, not only did it rip off the worshipers, but think about this, it confused them. It had to confuse them. It had to confuse them about the worship of the Lord. Oh, so, so worship means I come in and, and I have to pay, or I have to you know, do a certain thing, or say a certain thing, or, or whatever else. It was spiritual anarchy. And I like the Greek word robbers. It's this word called leestis, and it means a robber, a highwayman, a bandit, or a brigand. So it's not just someone who, I'm going to you know, maybe pick your pocket. You know, just a minor little robbing thing. No, it, it connotes this idea, and that's why, that's why we use the word hideout. Because a, a robber's hideout, a den, is a place of refuge. It's a place of security. It's a place of safety. It's a place of plotting. And, and so look at the word picture that Jesus is giving. He says, you've made my temple, you've made my house a place where you come in and you plot and you scheme and you connive and you figure out how to take more from people and how to denigrate my name even more. So this temple of God had become the safe hiding place for crooks. And he compares this temple, which should be, should be a holy place with a cave used as a, as a robber's hideout. Where they felt, I mean, think about the priests. Did they feel threatened when in the temple? No, they felt, that was their ground. They were secure. They were safe. They were, they were comfortable. They, they, man, we got this taken care of. We've got this sewn up. We're secure here. And Jesus says, look, you, you've taken this, and it was supposed to be a holy place. That's why you know, the, the, the temple gate sermon talks about, you know, it was God's house. And Isaiah said it was God's house. And Jesus walked in and says, you've taken my house, and you've turned it into this place. My house is supposed to be a holy place. Because the temple for the Hebrew people, and we understand this, I hope, but it represented the very dwelling place of God himself. You know, when, when the temple was dedicated, what happened? The presence of God came down and filled the temple. The presence of God came down and filled the temple. It was a holy place. It was an awesome thing. It was a truly awesome thing. It was truly awe-inspiring. So it represented the dwelling place it was supposed to, of God himself. 
that God was dwelling in the midst. And not only did the temple house the presence of God, but everything and that was in it and everything that went on in it, and this is where it gets tricky, it was meant to point to God. Everything about the temple, everything that took place in the temple was designed to point to. I mean, if you've ever done a temple study, you know, everything from the metals used for the things to, to, to the lavers and, and the um, candlesticks, everything within the temple was symbolic. Everything had a purpose, but everything pointed to, everything pointed to God. And I just, I, I have to chuckle because I, I think about churches today. I need a drink. I think about churches today. And, and I'm not, I'm not anti-plaque. Plaques. Plaques are interesting. You, you walk into churches and there's plaques on things. You know, this, this door was donated by. And I'm not anti-plaques. But sometimes, churches, temples, I'm not talking about temples, we're talking about physical. Sometimes they turn into idols. Man, we got this great facility. We got to take care of this facility. We got to keep up this facility. We got this great program. We got to feed this program. We got to pour everything into this program because, well, you know, these, these people put all their effort and energy into this program. They're good people and we're going to support what they're doing. I tell you, it seems so often, I guarantee, and this is what's sad, there's a lot of churches you can walk into. And I think it would be difficult to find every element and every activity being God-centered. You know, we've developed such a culture of secular humanism and man-centeredness. Because we like it. It makes us feel good. It does. It makes us feel good. See, everything, everything within the temple was supposed to. People were supposed to encounter it and, and say, this points to God. This points to God. This is beautiful, but it points to God. This is poignant, but it points to God. This is whatever, but it points to God. One of the reasons that we try to be so careful with with what we do foundationally here at Hope is because we want to be careful what we do foundationally and say, all right, is it here and does it point there? And if it's not, we don't want it. Because we extrapolate from the physical temple that we're right, that you're talking about. Okay, everything's supposed to point to God. Well, we know now, 
I'm not stupid. I know now that we are the tabernacle. Okay, we are the temple. Well, we take that to its logical conclusion. Everything about the temple, then, should what? Should point to God. Everything extraneously about the temple, everything internally about the temple should point to God. That's harsh. No, it's just, that's just real. And it's difficult. But that's, that's the underlying theme that goes through here. Yes, I mean, we're going to talk more about, about you know, the, the, their temple and their empty worship and their decoration and the fact that they were barren. But at the end of the day, the heart of the matter was the heart. And Jesus was looking at the hearts, especially of the leadership, and saying, what you're doing does not point to God. And it's the whole intent of why this place was put together. See, the temple was supposed to be a reminder of the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham back in Genesis 15. That, that, that God himself would become flesh and blood to atone for their sins. Everything in the temple was supposed to point to that. And, and the Passover, and the Passover was, it was like, it was the pinnacle of the year. Okay. The Passover was, it was it. It was the time of year. It's like, it's like Christmas at the mall. Right? Christmas is the mall. I mean, it, it's the happening thing. Passover was the happening thing. It is when everyone came. And, and yes, there was activity and people were coming and they were supposed to be coming because they were filled with joy and they were excited and, and they were wanting to sacrifice and serve and worship. That's what it was supposed to be. Everyone converged, and everyone packed the place. But the result that Jesus saw and, and, and things that were going on was that everyone who came into the court of the Gentiles to the house of God, instead of being filled with, with, with awe and, and a realization of the presence of God, they found themselves, what? In a busy marketplace with buyers and sellers arguing and disputing and, and, and furiously prospective sacrificial animals and birds adding to the noise and money changers calling out rates and you know, people just kind of passing through with their, their packs and they're saying, excuse me, I'm just trying to get to the other side. That's all I want to do. I'm not really interested in what's going on in the temple. It's just a convenient you know, roadway. through. Uh, you know, I'll wave and I'll say a prayer or something as I'm passing through. This, is, this was the scene that Jesus came into. But the attitude was, well, they're only Gentiles. It really doesn't matter. They're only Gentiles. But the problem was, just like Jeremiah wrote, they were trusting in the wrong things. They were trusting in the wrong things. And as, as I've said, I think one of the biggest problems in churches today is that we trust in the wrong things. You trust in the wrong things. Man, it's been there, done that, have the t-shirt. It's easy to trust in programs, and it's easy to trust in people, and it's easy to trust in facilities, and it's easy to trust in heritage, and it's easy to trust in, I hate this one. It's easy to trust in experience 
Well, it worked for me. I've gotten good results. I don't care. It's not here. Oh, I get so weary talking to people. I say, well, you know, the, the Bible may say that, but this worked for me. I don't care if it worked for you. It's not, it's not scriptural. Man, that wears me out. Why is it? Because we want to trust in things that we can get our hands around and things we can sink our teeth into. Say, I can trust in this. I can trust in this person because they're a dynamic person. I'm going to trust in their leadership. I can trust in this program because it's a great program and it impacts people worldwide. That's great. But is it biblical and does it honor God ultimately or is it for the self-aggrandizement of someone else? Or I can trust in this great facility or I can trust in the heritage that I know or I can trust in this experience because this experience worked for me. It doesn't matter. That's what they did. I hope we understand they did the same things that we do today. They were trusting in the same things that we trust in today. And Jesus says, no, I have a problem with it. I have a problem with it. And I know that people and programs and tradition and experience, I mean, there is some good with that. Just like I'm, I'm not anti-plaque. I'm not anti-people program, things like that. However, I am so tired that, that we have developed these paradigms where we just refuse to test everything, everything against the lens of Scripture. And I don't care if, it has, I don't care if it's church, I don't care if it's personal. Test everything against the lens of Scripture. That's why why God told Paul to write, look, examine everything about yourself, not just the things that you think you can work on or change. Examine everything about yourself. Examine everything about your temple, about the temple, about the tavern. Examine everything and see if anything comes up short. Jesus says, look, man, it's a hideout, and it's supposed to be a holy place. These people are coming in, they can't worship me. Or if they are, they're doing it in a twisted way. They're trusting. You're, you're forcing them to trust in the wrong things. Churches do that every week. They force people to trust in the wrong things. Say, well, if, if, we, don't have, if we don't have flashing lights and, and you know, dynamic whatever, you can't worship. I had, had a great conversation a few months ago. Not great, it was frustrating. Talking to a guy, he says, well, I just... I just can't worship if, if, if all they do is sing hymns. I, I can't worship unless, they're, unless they have a, you know, like a pretty good band. So really, so that's, that's a hard issue. You're saying you can't gather with God's people. You are unable to worship because there aren't conditions in your world that haven't been met. But we've created these paradigms that said, well, If you don't have these formulas, you can't have a successful church experience, a successful worship experience, blah, 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 blah. And and isn't it great because, you know, Solomon wrote this. He said, there's nothing new under the sun. (laughs) Same problems they had back then. We got now. 
It's not a holy place. But I tell you, it's, it's a lot easier and a lot more convenient. Here's a good litmus test, man. You can, you, can, you can talk about church and activities in the church all day long with people. And people won't bat an eye. But here, here's where the rubber meets the road. Man, you start talking about the gospel. You start talking about the price for our sin. You start talking about judgment of God. You start talking about the necessity of the cross. Truths that are central to who we are and how we should function. You start talking about those things rather than, oh, we got this great program or this whatever. Or, you know, church was really good. I don't know. You start talking about those things. You start, start talking about holiness and judgment and those types of things. And people squirm. They get uncomfortable. Or, or they, they just quit talking. Oh, that's nice. Okay. Well, the Bible says don't judge. Well, no, read the verse in context. Anyway. These people were trusting in the wrong things. And I said that, but trust is a heart issue. And the temple was supposed to be the heart. It was supposed to be the heart of Israel. It was their heart. It was a vital organ to who they were and how they functioned. And if there was going to be anything of the gospel in Israel, it was going to be found in the temple. If there was going to be a message of grace and mercy, then it should have been found in the temple. If there was a remnant in Israel waiting for consolation and the coming of the Messiah, then it should have been in the temple. But Jesus found nothing there but leaves. There was no fruit. Just a fancy covering. Because the temple had ceased to be about the Lord. It had become a house that was man-centered and not God-centered. It was not God's house. It was a house devoted to the needs of everyone else. It was convenient and safe and secure. And, and they liked it that way. And the sad thing was that most people thought the things were taking place in the temple. They were necessary. And, and they were fine. And they were even helpful. Remember, it was convenient. How convenient? It was very convenient. Most people had no problem with the system and the way things worked. Except one. One people. One people had a problem. Jesus walked in and he said, no more. And we get this great language of casting out. He says, no more. And we see Jesus righteously angry. And we see Jesus righteously violent. And he's turning over tables. And he's running people out. And he's refusing to let people just wander through. And it's not... I'd, see, I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to see you know, a, a good... I don't know. There's probably been a decent representation on, on a movie. But it would be, that would just be, that would be amazing to see. Because it's not like he was walking in and saying, Hey, no, you don't do that. You, no, no, you, you go away. No, he was coming in, and he was picking up tables, and he was throwing tables, and he was shoving people out of the way, and he's saying, stop that, quit that, no more. I'm not going to have this anymore. And there's money flying around, and there's animals you know, running loose, and, and people yelling, what are you doing in here? And you're causing disruption and chaos. And, and I love the fact that Jesus is the great disruptor. He's not chaotic, but he is the great disruptor. Man, if Jesus hasn't disrupted you, then, then you don't know him, because he's, that's what he does. He disrupts you. But he came in, and he disrupted things. He tore it up. He tore it up. And this word cast out is a great word. And I want you to understand the word. It's ekbalo. 
but it means to force to leave, to dry out, to expel. But it's the same word a lot of times that's used when it talks about Jesus casting out demons. It's the same term. Ekbalo. He went in. He was upset. He said, what have you done in my house? Think about it. You come to your house. And there's just there's throngs of people there, and they've taken over, and they're making messes, and they've got the toilet paper on the wrong way, and they're, they're, they've got drinks and food on the wrong couch in the living room, and you know they're, they, they don't have, they're, they're like sitting on counters. I mean, there's, there's bad stuff going on. And so you come in and say, no, 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 we're not going to have this. And he said, you're, you're in my house. My house is designed a certain way. It's set up a certain way. It's designed so that we, we portray and we point to God Almighty. You're not doing that. You're out. I'm done with you. It says he cast them out. Ekbalo. He, he was saying no more. No more of this half shekel stuff. No more of these sacrifices. No more of the spiritually barren practices. No more shameful priests. We're done. No more. It's over. He was saying, look, there, there's a new high priest in town. Here I am. I have arrived. We know from Hebrews that our high priest sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He serves in the sanctuary. He serves in the true tabernacle set up by God Almighty, not by men, not by things made with hands. Hebrews 8, 1 and 2 says, Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who's taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He's a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, which the Lord built, the Lord put together, not any man. You see, Jesus' actions came in, and they claimed a higher priestly authority than even the high priest that was there. You go back to Hosea 9 or Malachi 3, and you you get some of that language. He says, no, no, I'm a higher authority. And and you also get the idea of, of him cursing the heart of the nation. Why? Because it was a heart issue. Cursing the heart of the nation. Why? Because it appeared to have life. It appeared to offer hope. It appeared to be engaged in worship, but, but they weren't. There was no fruit. There was just a decorative covering of leaves. They were engaged in all this other stuff. They were not engaged in worship. They, they were engaged in a profitable business. It was a successful business. It did well. It worked well for them. They were successful in what they did. So when Jesus upset that, well, they understandably got upset. Verse 18 gives us an epilogue. Gives us this plotting. First we see, I just called them cowards. Cowards. Because in many ways it were. But they were angry. And the text says they were seeking to destroy him. See, the, the, the priests who ran the temple and controlled things, they were angry because Jesus had hit them in two really tough areas. He hit them in two tough areas. He, he hid them in their reputation. He hit their reputation because... He was undermining their authority and he was revealing the inadequacy of their teaching. He's saying, look, I have the authority. Your teaching is junk. So they are angry about that. And they are angry because he hit them in their riches. He hit them in their pocketbook. Man, we don't like to get hit in our pocketbook. 
So they were angry. And they started plotting. And it was not just a few priests. It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then Mark's talked to us about that before in 12.12 and 14.1, You know, how, how these groups who hated each other got together because they, well, we got a common foe. We've got to do something about this guy. So they, they've been plotting for a while. So he just gave them more fuel for their fire. So they are angry, but it also says they were afraid. We've seen this word before, phobeo. All right, it's a familiar term. Mark's used it several times in different instances. But they were afraid. What were they afraid of? They were afraid of his influence. They were afraid of his authority. They were afraid especially of his appeal to the crowd. They hated the fact that the crowds were who is this man? They hated the fact that wherever Jesus went, multitudes of people would find him and follow him and sit for days and listen to him. And it had to frustrate him because they thought, man, you know, we get people come to temple service. It's all we can do to get them to sit for an hour and, and listen to us read, you know, read the Torah or whatever. And these guys, they're, they're sitting for days. I don't appreciate that. They were afraid. They were afraid of who he was and what it meant that he was there. But they, they, man, they hated the fact that the crowd resonated with him. The crowd, on the other hand, and we've seen this too. In fact, we've seen this word. I'll tell you, a couple things you should learn from Mark are the words phobeo and the word ekpleso. <laughs> because it says they were amazed, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, I know it may not sound to you like coming in and turning tables over and throwing people out is teaching. But remember, Jesus was always, always, always in teaching mode. He taught in his words. He taught in his actions. And he was doing, he was doing all that in the temple. And just by saying, you've taken my house and turned it into this, the crowds were paying attention. They were listening. So they were, they were ekpleso. They were astonished, they were amazed. Now, it doesn't mean that they agreed with everything he was saying. We know, we know that's not true. It doesn't mean they disagreed with what he was saying. We know that's true also. But what it really means is they were just, they were kind of dumbfounded. They were standing there, I can't believe, did you see, I can't believe he just, and did, and then said, I can't believe it. What does that mean? I don't know. I, don't, I know Joe, he's, and he's, that's Joe's table. I don't know. They were, they were amazed. And they were amazed, I think, on a number of levels. They're amazed that someone would come in and do that that would be so disruptive. And they were amazed that he would say that. And then I think they were kind of astonished at the implications of what he was doing and saying. What are the ripples to this? What's it mean if he's, you know, if he's driving all these people out? So I think also, like so many people, when it comes to things that disrupt. I think they're apprehensive. I mean, there, there, there is an element of apprehension. Because I guarantee there are people who are saying, well, wait a minute, this is what we've done forever. This is what we've known forever. This, this is what I'm familiar with. This is what's convenient. And this is what's safe. This is, I, the temple's always been this way. He's disrupting all of that. I'm not sure about that. It's the way we've been trained. It's the way we've been taught. It's uh, since I was a taught. It's always been like this. 
So I think, yeah, they're amazing, but I think there was some apprehension. Because whenever the living word disrupts you, there's always apprehension. It's not like, oh, th- thank you, God Almighty, for completely wrecking my view on this or, or changing my, my stance or just completely altering everything about what I thought I believed. Thank you very much. I'm just at peace. No, it's like, I can't believe this is where God has taken me. So I think they're apprehensive. But Jesus came in and said, look, there are problems. There are problems. And here's what I know. Because I've done this a while. I think he could walk into any given church on any given Sunday and say, you know, there's problems. There's problems. He could, he could ask questions. I love to ask questions. He wanted to say, everything about you guys, point to God. Everything here, God-centered, or you got a lot of man-centered things. How many things here are, are a matter of convenience or experience or tradition? And Or you could say, you know, I, I can't believe you guys are trading sermons for talks. Let's have a nice talk. We're going to have a talk. Because talk sounds nicer, doesn't it? I mean, if you're going to go to a, to a, a gathering, it's, it's much safer to say, I'm going to go listen to a nice talk. I was at church today, I heard a nice talk. Don't you even say that. You better not say that after leaving. Because I, man, hope bad. It's a nice little talk. No, it's called a sermon. It's not even a homily. It's a sermon. It's not a talk. I'm talking but it's not a talk. Man, a lot of churches are doing that. They're, they're trading sermons for talk. They're, they're trying to capitalize on new trends. Oh, we got we to figure out a way to reach this segment. Really? Okay. We got we to we hire a cool worship band. That's our, that's our next thing, by the way. We're going to be hiring a cool worship band. I think Jesus could walk into a lot of places and say, look, there's nothing here but empty worship. There's nothing here but empty worship. William Temple, William Temple defined worship this way, and I I, I like this. To quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to fill the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to to devote the will to the purpose of God, of God. Now, I didn't read anything in there about make me feel good, make me smile, make me whatever else. No. The truth of God, beauty of God, love of God, purpose of God, holiness of God. This temple was filled with, with empty, meaningless worship, and it was a heart issue. And, and again, people today, people then, just have a small view of God. You know what happens when you have a small view of God? You have a small place for God within your life. If your view of God is like this, 
Well, guess how much occupies here? If you have a small view of God, he occupies such a small place within your life. And here's what's, I think, the most humbling and the most frightening. See, God brought judgment on the people. God brought judgment on the temple. God brought judgment on the nation. Because they were barren. They were all leaves, no fruit. They were empty. They were disobedient. And, and in the same way, don't understand this timing, never will. I think you'd probably scare me if I did. But in the same way, I guarantee he will judge nations. And he will judge churches. And he will judge individuals. And he will look at us and, and, and he's going to say, where is your fruit? Or is it, is it just a show is, you know, is, is, are you just pretending? Is it just a self-serving, man-centered covering of, of leaves? Man, one of my prayers for Hope Baptist is, is that Jesus could not ever walk in and, and say, well, this, this is all man-centered. You, you've forgotten what it means to worship God. You've left your first love. I, mean, I, think, I think we preached a little bit about that at our, at our November launch. And my, my prayer is that, that as much as it depends on us and the power of God working within us, that we can stay faithful to the living word and the living God. But that's my prayer for each of us. That's my prayer for each of us. Man, I hope, I hope no one here ever gets comfortable, ever gets complacent, ever gets satisfied with who you are and where you are in Christ. I hope none of us do. I mean, we, you know, we, we see that so often. They were comfortable, and they were complacent, and they were satisfied because it was what they knew, and it was convenient, and, and it was safe. And Jesus had to, he had to physically disrupt them. I hope, that, I hope that each of us stays faithful to the Word and stays faithful to study. Because if we're staying faithful to study, Jesus will disrupt you. The Word will disrupt you. But if you have a hard issue, you won't let Him disrupt you. You'll just close off and say, I'm not interested. That's not for me. That's not the way I interpret that. <laughs> I love that. Oh, that's fun. So church... Let's, let's, let's do our best to not be barren. Let's, let's do our best to not put on fancy coverings. I'm not talking about clothes. If you, want, if you want to dress up, you dress up. You know what I mean. 
Don't just put on a covering. Don't put on a show. Don't cover yourself with leaves saying, yeah, man, me and Jesus, bro, I'm following him. And it turned out that there's nothing underneath. Right? Don't do that. And these two accounts are such a humbling portrayal of judgment. Again, it, it, should, it should cause us to tremble. Seeing what Jesus did, knowing what he does, it should cause us to tremble. Saying, I... God, examine me, search me, try me, see if there's anything within me that doesn't measure up. Father God, we, as always, praise you for your word, which is powerful, and it's true, and it's mighty, and it's convicting, and it's compelling, and it's hopefully, Lord, a, a, a catalyst to bring us to a, a deeper understanding of you. God, my, my prayer is that you will continue to use your word and your spirit to drive us to our knees. God, that we might not be satisfied with who we are and that we might not ever get complacent with who we are or the, but, but, but that we would please be open and willing to be changed and disrupted by you. Lord, continue to have your hand on us as we finish with our worship of you. Lord, help us to stay faithful and to be fruitful. Lord, we love you and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.